It's like romper room. <laughs> I know, except it's a much better version of romper room where I actually say your name. Yes. <laughs> right. Okay. So we are going to begin. Before we begin, let me just say that as you guys know, Rosh Hashanah is upon us tomorrow evening and there's a beautiful idea, uh, which I probably should have told you a few days ago, that the whole week leading up to Rosh Hashanah, which is the last week of the year, so every day of that week has the power to atone for like all the other Thursdays of the year. Friday will be all the other Fridays of the year. So you guys are spending your Thursday studying Torah, and many of you spend every Thursday studying Torah, but this is a really great way to go into the year. And um, also want to mention for those of you who are busy, you know, cooking, hosting, blah, blah, blah. So some of you may have noticed that sometimes on Fridays, just going to speak for myself here, um, sometimes Fridays are a stressful day and sometimes I may not show up as the best version of myself on Friday. So my teacher, Mrs. Barkin, uh, she said in a talk, and I've heard her say this many times, this Friday gets to be the repair for every Friday of the year that you might have find, found yourself stressful or hectic or short-tempered or uh, that I may have found myself doing those things. And so just want you guys to go into it with that mindset that this is a golden opportunity and it's really like a very beautiful um, idea to carry us into the new year. Okay. Now, I think Shana, is this your first time on our group? Yes, it is. Hold Are on. you a Chicago girl? I am. Yes, I'm a North Okay, girl. welcome. Yes. Thank you. Thanks Everybody for Everybody say me. hi to the new girl. All right. And <laughs> hi. Hi. And Rebecca, it's good to see you. And Karen and everybody else. And those of you who are not new but are returnees, I'm always glad to see you too. All right. Tammy, let us get started with chapter 17, verse 21. Okay. Hebrew, you're led still. I don't, tell me where it is. You don't stop. need to read. You don't need to read the Hebrew if you don't want to. Totally up to you. I can. I don't know where you want me to pause. But your leg sealed it to God, lo v'lo yismach avinaval. That was the whole thing. Okay. And the English translation is? He who sires a fool does so to his sorrow, and the father of a troll has no joy. What's it? The father of a troll has no joy. No, not a troll. We have joy. <laughs> We control. No, uh, C H U R L. Oh, a churl. I was wondering. Okay. Do you happen to know the Hebrew word that lines up with churl? Still is fool. Naval. Naval. Right. Okay. Very good. Okay. So, um, a fool, the way it's been used in this uh, book so far, means somebody that spurns wisdom, somebody that has that opportunity to be connected to wisdom and decides to reject it because they would rather do whatever they want to do, right? Now, I, I just have to mention, um, well, I want to say hello to Avril and Heather and Yael, um, but I just want to mention uh, that Sherry Goldberg, who is one of the longest attending members of this class, um, celebrated a beautiful milestone last night. 
she and some friends are in the process of launching a housing development for special needs adults. And last night was the groundbreaking. Um, and I'm extremely proud of her. And this is a project that has taken 12 years so far. And God willing, in 18 months, these uh, young adults will be able to move in. Um, and, you know, Sherry was telling us last night when we went to the groundbreaking, how much pushback and hate they have gotten for the launching of this project. So as my husband and I were driving home last night, you know, he said to me, like, I don't understand, like, what kind of hate could you get for such a project? Like, one would think, right, that who who can't get around supporting people with special needs? Like what could possibly be anyone's opposition to this project, right? Now, I don't know, maybe Sherry can fill us in, but the bottom line is that there are some people who really do not want causes to interfere with what they want. And as Tammy just posted in the chat, it's an impolite and mean-spirited person, right? A person of low birth, a peasant, okay? But, and I mean, we're, we're talking about two different parts of the verse. The first part of the verse is talking about a fool, a seal, someone who spurns wisdom, right? The second part of the verse is talking about a churl, meaning somebody who really just is just mean, you know? And as much as me and you and everybody on this call, we would be outraged to imagine that somebody could oppose such a project, but Sherry can attest, and I'm sure any of you as well, that there are people in this world who are just not that noble-minded. And there are people in this world who are just looking after their own interests, you know? And um, it's it's a very unpleasant situation when you realize I've always been an optimist and I've always been about, hey, people are mostly good, la, 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 you know? And I still, <clears throat> I still believe that, still sticking to that story. But every now and then you come across somebody that really doesn't share those values and it can really be very distressing. You know, it can really start to make you lose your, lose your faith in humanity, you know, but you, but you can't, you can't lose your faith in humanity. You have to keep your faith strong that humanity is okay, because I would rather believe that most people are good and be wrong then believe that most people are bad and be right. Okay. Right. They don't want it in their backyard. Right. I'm saying they're more concerned with their own interests than about a greater cause. Okay. Thank you so much, Tammy. And thank you for sending me that picture. So I'm going to read you the, now that Tammy saved my life for sending me that picture, I'm going to go ahead and read you guys the commentary. A fool from birth, Overpowered from the start by his passions and cravings, no matter what he may learn, brings his father the deepest sorrow, right? So if, if somebody has a child like this, a child who's putting their own interests, passions, and cravings before causes and ideas, right, then it gives it can give their parents a lot of grief. It's very upsetting when we see our kids you know, not espousing our values or living in a way that is actually counter to our values. This can be extremely difficult. Welcome, Sydney and Sheila. Since he is evidently beyond hope. Now, we know that nobody is actually beyond hope. But sometimes when we look at our kids and we, you know, see them making certain choices, it can seem like they're beyond hope. You know, I listened to this lecture. Um, it was like a short 20-minute um speech 
that a rabbi gave to a group of mothers who all have kids who are really struggling emotionally and mentally and spiritually and just really not doing well at all. And, and he was giving these mothers, you know, support and inspiration before the holidays, you know, and he said, listen, you really have to use this opportunity to pray for your kids. And this one mom raised her hand and she said, you know, I'm always praying for my kid. She's like, I I pray for my kid nonstop. But she's like, sometimes it just feels like, sorry, I'm listening to it. Sometimes it just feels like she's like, my prayers are not being answered. So she's like, here comes Rosh Hashanah. And of course I know I'm supposed to pray for my kid on Rosh Hashanah, but how can I keep praying for something that just doesn't seem to be answered? It seems like my prayers are, and she pauses and she's, you know, groping for the word. And the rabbi says, cumulative. He says, I want you to know that your prayers are cumulative and that they all build on each other and they're not wasted and they don't go nowhere. So it can really be disheartening when we see our kids struggling or suffering or going down a bad way. And we feel like, well, we're praying and we're hoping, and it just doesn't seem like it's working, so to speak, right? That's why the commentary says evidently beyond hope. Because there's no such thing as actually being beyond hope. Okay. The commentary continues. On the other hand, a churl, the opposite of a generous person, generally becomes so by conditioning and habit. So what the commentary is doing here is making a distinction between a fool and a churl, meaning that a fool, he says, is overpowered by the start by his passions and cravings, meaning this is somebody who was born with this personality. They just want things. They're stubborn. They have a hard time limiting their self-gratification. They have a hard time, you know, delaying gratification. And it just seems like, oh my gosh, like they were just born this way. This is how they were from the time they were so little. Now, a churl, this mean-spirited person, right? Naval, as it is in Hebrew, he says, become so by conditioning and habit. So this is somebody who, you know, and again, we see this sometimes in our kids where they were born and they were delightful. And then somewhere along the way, something happened and they started to develop these, you know, difficult character traits. And it's, again, it's still very disheartening, right? So he says it may well be his father, Churlish himself, who has trained him in this direction and is happy with the result. Meaning, let's say you have a father who's very... Um, ambitious and business-minded, right? And who is not above cutting corners or using their friends to get what they want. And so the kids have grown up with this value, right? That the business comes before everything and that you don't have to help your friends or you don't have to, you know, you don't have to necessarily operate on a high level of ethics, So maybe when the father sees his kids following in that way, maybe he's even proud of them. He's like, oh, raised your right. You guys have my values. So even if the father in the scenario is happy in the short term, the commentary finishes off by saying in the end, however, he will have no joy. His happiness will turn to grief. So somebody who's raised on bad values, even if their parents might sort of cheer them on in the short term, they will not have naha, so to speak, from them in the long term. So I, I want to give you an example. Um, hi, Sydney and Cindy. Who else joined? That's it. Uh, so 
my sister-in-law was once in a store and she saw a mother training her young child, like six, seven years old in shoplifting. My sister-in-law watched it happen. The mother was sort of telling the kid, well, this year you're going to put in my purse, this you're going to put in your pocket, and we're still going to pay for a few things so that they don't think that we're, you know, stealing. And she, she told me the story after she experienced it. And I was so blown away by the story. I literally showed it to me a couple of years ago. I haven't forgotten it because this is literally what we're talking about. A parent training their child in the tricks of the trade. And if the kid follows in his mother's footsteps, the mother will be very proud of him, right? Because he learned the art of the con. But what this is saying, is, and, and, and obviously, you know, that's not really an example that any of us are struggling with, but we all have stuff in our own subtle way, right? Oh, is that so-and-so? Tell them I'm not here. No, no, I, I'm going to let that call go to voicemail. I don't, I don't speak to that person, you know, or whatever. I don't know, whatever, you know, we all have negative character traits and sometimes we are, whether knowledgeably or inadvertently teaching our kids those negative character traits. And it can be really uh, a very unpleasant situation. Now, sometimes when we see our kids following in those in those paths, we're proud of them. And sometimes we see our kids following our habits and we're like, oh shoot, they picked that up from me. That is very unpleasant to think about. And now I have some unteaching to do, you know, and I have my work cut out for me. So either way, whether this child was born from the start or whether this child was trained, maybe even by their parents, you know, in negative character, there's two things that you have to know that first of all, prayer always works. There's no, there's no such thing as hopeless, right? And also that, you know, if we do see our kids following in a negative way, we have to really try to introspect and ask ourselves in any way, have we taught them that, you know, or have they seen them from, have they seen that from us, you know, and the answer to that may well be no, the answer doesn't have to be yes, but it's certainly a question that we have to ask ourselves. Okay, thoughts, comments, questions on verse 21. I was having a situation with one of my kids and they were like, I, I keep thinking about the phrase that you use when you said the person who feels evil isn't really ill last week. You know, the person who feels evil isn't really the evil one. Mm-hmm. And it this is just what it makes me think about because they came to me and they felt remorse about something. And so I was like, yes, you know, that's a good thing because mm-hmm. even though they made, you know, felt that they might've made a mistake, at least they felt it. And they wanted to know if I've experienced this in my younger years. And that was really powerful too, because I was able to kind of reach back to a time that I had a similar issue and overcame it. So, you know, through, through learning and we've had that conversation. That's why I do what I do every week to improve (laughs) that. It's not, I'm not a lost cause just yet. No such thing as a lost cause. Right. You remember the story I told in Chicago about that guy who, uh, who visited every prostitute in the country. So there's no such thing as hopelessness. Yeah. Right. Okay. Any other thoughts or comments on 21? 
Sherry, are you saying something? Because you're muted. No? There yeah, we go. I um, I was going to say, first of all, thank you for saying something about our project and being there last night. But um, one of the things I learned over the maybe 12 years or to get off the ground yesterday was I would go to the sisters were doing I would go to the sisters and they regularly said exactly what you said. It's God's time. It's not our time for whatever reason, for whatever purpose. It's not happening this year or next year or the year after. And sometimes I went over there for hugs. I was so weary. I'm like, what is going on? I can't listen to one more angry neighbor say, you know, I don't want this in my backyard for 42 different reasons. Like traffic, but our kids don't even drive. Anyway, long story short, it's exactly what you're saying. It's sometimes not our time, but God's time. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things I was saying last night to Sherry is that I think it's so auspicious that the groundbreaking of this event happened this last week of the year, which means that it was determined almost 12 months ago on Rosh Hashanah of last year, that this year is the time. And, you know, after 12 years of hoping and praying, this year is the time. And that's really the hopefulness that, you know, I really like encourage everybody to bring into the new year, which is even if there is something that you've been praying for and hoping for for so long. And, you know, it is weird. It is wearisome, as you said, Sherry, right? That like it, it gets exhausting sometimes like this mom on this, you know, in this class that I listened to where she was just so exhausted of praying for the same thing over and over and over again. But that we do believe as Jews that there is hope above all else and that one day the time will come and God will say, now it is your time to shine, you know, and that we, we got to have that hope as we go into the air. So I, I think the timing was so special. And so, you know, just really like, you know, really just kind of circled with circled in the calendar and read, you know, yeah. that this is when it's supposed to be. Thank you. Okay. Anything else before we move on to 22? All right. Verse 22. Um, which means a merry heart enhances the body, but a wretched spirit dries the bones. So this is so interesting. It's not the first time in, or the only time in the book of Proverbs where King Solomon talks about, which is such a modern concept, where King Solomon talks about an emotion affecting the body, right? Hang on one second. I'm just going to close the door. It's just a noise in the office. Um, an emotion affecting the body, right? He said, he said elsewhere in, in the book of Proverbs, I don't remember where that, um, envy rots the bones, right? And here he's talking about a happy spirit, um, brings well-being to his body. Wait, don't, hold on. That's the commentary. Sorry. Um, 
where's the translation? A merry spirit enhances the body, but a wretched spirit dries the bones that your feelings affect your body, right? Don't forget that King Solomon lived 3000 years ago. And this is such a, this mind body, this mind body connection is such a modern concept. What King Solomon is telling us is that Musser, which is the ability to change our character traits, right? And, and therefore our mindset has an immediate impact on the body, on the way your body feels, you know, and this is true of so many things. If you, right, if you're stressed out, you could get a headache, you could break out, you could get hives, you could get eczema, people get back pain, people have stomach issues, right? So many different ways that our moods affect our bodies. And a big part of it is the stories that we tell ourselves about why things happen or why people do the things they do. A lot of it is an unwitting choice to personalize insults and make things about us. And if we have the ability to reframe using our muster tools, we can make an immediate impact on our physical well-being. It's an it's a revolutionary concept. Yes, Robin. I, I just actually yesterday thought of the expression, I don't know, it popped into my head, um, sick to my stomach. I like mm. you know, there's all these phrases that people mm-hmm. in referencing that, where there's like the mind body that yeah. we just use in a cavalier way, but it is true, right? Yeah. Somebody yeah. Makes sick to their stomach. If- Absolutely. It's true. It's very true. And we actually have a lot of expressions in English that reference this, right? Where we're like, we don't even think about it, but we're like, oh my gosh, it gave me the goosebumps. What does that mean? That means that you had an emotional or a mental experience and it caused your body to react, But what's important to notice here is that our bodily reactions are not necessarily correlated to reality. They're correlated to what we think reality is. They're correlated to the story we tell ourselves about reality, right? So last night I was alone at home and I was working in my kitchen and all of a sudden I heard this noise and I was like, oh my gosh, who's there? Nobody's supposed to be home right now. Oh my gosh, who's there? Right. And it was fear. So my heart starts pounding and I start sweating and I turned around and it was nothing. The wind had blown and the door moved and immediately my body changed. My brain told myself a story that I was in danger. So my body reacted. Was I actually in danger? No. So our bodily reactions are not necessarily correlated to reality. They're correlated to the story we tell ourselves about reality. And that's the part that we can change. Right? Pencil in the mouth? I don't think I ever heard that one, Tammy. What does that mean? Uh, if you supposedly, if you hold a pencil in your mouth like horizontally, it it um, I guess it enlists the same muscles that As are smiling. You smile, and so subjects in that condition felt happier. But you know, it's kind of like when kids are anxious before a test, and and. They are told, well, reframe it as excited. I'm excited. I'm going to show how much I've learned. And, you know, because your body doesn't really know whether you're excited or anxious. Right. So interesting. I want to, can I piggyback more? I definitely try to tell my clients because the word anxiety 
I don't remember the word even being used when I was a child, like agreed at all. Um, so I really try to tell my client when you tell yourself you're anxious in like all these situations, you have social anxiety, you have test anxiety, you have performance anxiety. You have, I'm like, if you really just say it's stress, it actually takes some of the burden off of you. Like, because athletes are stressed out before stuff, right? Cause they're training and they're working so hard. And I'm like, but that's a good stress, right? Cause if they didn't have any stress, they wouldn't be Olympic athletes, you know? Right. So, or you wouldn't study for the test if you didn't care. Right. You know? It's, it's interesting. You say that like when I teach a class, like a, not like a class like this, when I'm just like, it's more of a casual conversation, but when I'm up on a stage with a microphone in front of a big crowd, like I am on adrenaline and I do have like, I'm, when I'm finished teaching a class, I'm hot and sweaty. Sorry if that's TMI. Why? Because it's adrenaline. I wouldn't call it stress. I mean, I guess adrenaline is positive stress. Yeah, it can be. I mean, for sure. And even when your body went into fight or flight last night, like, and you're sort of like, oh my gosh, my body just did that. But then it also, there's times when we need that, like, cause the, the fear, you know, is real. Right. Right. That's true. And I think, I think that, you know, it, it, it speaks to the wisdom of the body that God gave us, which is that it has these alert responses, right? And then it's our job to use our mind and ask ourselves, is that alert response, you know, accurate or is it like, like if my phone alarm rings, you know, and I can be like, oh, the alarm ring. Okay. Well, what does that mean? Well, it might mean it's time to wake up. It might mean it's time to switch the laundry. It might mean that the cake is ready in the oven, right? It could mean different things. So we have this amazing, brilliant body that God gave us that has these alert responses. So if we do have to run, our heart is pounding, our minds are alert, we're ready. But sometimes it just means that it's a fake response that we then have to teach ourselves something about and overcome. Okay. Thank you, Heather. Um, So let's read the commentary for 22. Um, One who is cheerfully at home in this world, prospering, may bring well-being to his body. But if his spiritual bring, if his spiritual being is broken within, not prospering at all in its growth, then his very essence, bones, is dried up and decays. So what he's saying here is something a little different than what we've been saying up till now, which is that the success of your body is directly related to the success of your soul, right? What does that mean? So let's say you have a person who takes excellent care of their body. They're physically fit and they work out and they eat very nutritious foods and they don't get too much sun, but just enough to get vitamin D, but not enough to get skin cancer. And they, you know, make sure to, um, you know, not expose themselves to toxic substances and all of this, right? Okay. Well, we, we know that sometimes a person can take excellent care of their bodies, but sometimes their bodies are anyway, not necessarily so healthy. It's not direct cause and effect. Okay. But let's say, let's say you have this person and then this person does not take care of their soul. So they don't work on themselves. They don't study. They're not connected to values. They, they, they're, they're not in a relationship with God. They don't try to treat other people. Well, they're not charitable. They're just kind of selfish in this world. Right? 
So you could ask yourself, like, what's the point of your amazing, fit, strong, healthy body with super triglycerides and amazing lipids? Like, who really cares? What's the point of your life in this world? You were only here for a short amount of time. Even if somebody lives a very long life, how old are they? A hundred? A hundred years in the span of human history is nothing. It's a blink. So you took great care of your body, but you didn't take care of your soul. What is the legacy that's going to outlive you when you're gone? What are people going to remember about you? Are they going to say that you had amazing triglycerides? I don't think so, right? But so here's what he's saying is that if a person has this, you know, his spiritual growth is broken, right? Ruach his, his bones will rot. That means his bones might as well be rotten. Who cares about your amazing body if your soul is broken? But if a person does take care of their soul, and of course, we should also take care of our body, but we should at least, we should take at least as much care of our soul as we do of our body. Because when you think about it as commodities, our soul lasts forever. Your soul is what will outlive you. So that's great. Take care of the body God gave you and feed it good food and exercise it and give it nutrition and don't expose it to toxins. I'm a fan of all of those things. But if you also take care of your soul and you also, you study the Torah's wisdom and you try to implement it however you can, and you try to connect yourself to a relationship with God and you remind yourself that everything happens for a reason and you try to give other people the benefit of the doubt and you try to plug into the mitzvot of Judaism, which exists to connect us to God and to transform us if we give them the right intention, right? Then our bodies will have become worth it. Because then our physical existence on this planet is making an enormous difference. And I just want to mention um, Sidney Harris's father, Mr. Gene Mesh, whose um, yard site, I think, just passed, right, Sydney? And Sydney's son-in-law, Rabbi Josh Grodko, who's our assistant rabbi, wrote such a beautiful article about him for a Shabbat email. Um, I hope some of you had the opportunity to read it. And as I was reading it, I was thinking about how he left such an unbelievable legacy. And Sydney, I even said to your son-in-law, Josh, I said, it's so beautiful the way he wrote about him. You would think it was a grandchild as opposed to a grandchild-in-law, but he obviously forged such a beautiful relationship and a connection with him, and he made such a powerful impression on him. You know, and when he writes about him, you know, he writes about his spiritual legacy, about his philanthropy, his tzedakah, his kindness, his connection to Israel, and it's just such a, it's just such a statement, you know, to, and I don't think he considered himself to be religious per se, but he was so connected to Jewish values. And that's the part that outlives you. That's the part that everybody will remember, right? And that's the part that your physical existence on this world, now it's worth it. Now it matters that you live. Now you better take care of your body because people like that, we want around for as long as possible to leave the most powerful legacy that they possibly can. So I I want you to know, Sydney, I was so moved by that article. I'm going to share it with the group because it was, it was really, really special. Okay. Thoughts or comments on 22?
Okay. 23. Shochad mechik rasha yikach, sorry, shochad mechik rasha yikach lahatot orchot mishpat. So the English version of that, oh, um, a wicked man takes a bribe out of the bosom to pervert the ways of justice. Okay, so we're talking now about bribes. Now, a bribe is not necessarily like a literal bribe. Sometimes it means that people flatter other people in order to get what they want. Or sometimes it means that they'll do a favor for somebody in the hopes of getting a favor in return. Okay, and this is something that is unfortunately very, very common. So the meaning of this um the meaning of this verse, if you look in the commentary on page 184, other bribes to favor one side, a judge might take openly, but this, a wicked judge takes stealthily out of the bosom of the giver with the express purpose of undermining the system of justice. So this is the bribes that are undetectable, right? That you couldn't like document anywhere. And, you know, a lot of times people... They sort of butter other people up for their own gain, right? Because they want to look important or they want to feel connected or they want to be able to ask that person for a favor in return. Or if I fraternize with these people, then I'll be in this sphere socially or these people will think I'm important, you know, and it's it's like we really have to ask ourselves, this is a big part of Musser, is to really introspect and ask ourselves, what are the motivations that I have for the things that I do. You know, in this book that we're doing on Tuesday, um, this book I have here, uh, it's called Orchot Sadikim, The Ways of the Righteous. And it goes through 28 character traits. Some of you have studied this book with me. And one of the character traits is called flattery. So whenever I say that word, I think of a joke my grandfather told me when I was a little girl, which I didn't understand when he told me. He goes, Um, He goes, one man says to the other man, I have such an old car that I call her flattery. So the guy says, why do you call her flattery? He says, because it gets me nowhere. (laughs) So I did not, I don't think I was old enough to understand the meaning of the word flattery when my grandfather told me that joke. But anyways, many years later, now I'm teaching character traits. And every time, every time I say the word flattery, I think of my grandfather. Um, But anyway, the whole chapter is a whole chapter on flattery. And I think there's like nine categories of flatterers. Like, you know, this is a big deal, you know. So what they all have in common is that you sort of butter up a person who does bad things because you have some ulterior motive in mind, right? Because you have to partner with this person somehow or because if you do so, then you will you know, get ahead in your industry or profession or whatever the case may be. And the problem with this is twofold. First of all, it compromises your own standards and values, right? We should not be paying. I'm not just talking about literal currency. Obviously, I'm talking about social and emotional currency in order to get something in return that is a transactional relationship. But the other thing too is that when we seem to endorse a person who is unsavory, it leaves a negative impression on others, like because people say things like, oh, well, I mean, they're friends. It must not be that bad. Well, no, maybe it is that bad and they should not be friends. 
So we kind of give endorsement or approval to people by who we're willing to, you know, be seen with or fraternize with or socialize with, you know, and, and I think sometimes what happens, and this, this is something that might be, you know, more relevant to all of us. Like sometimes we'll get invited to something that everybody wants to go to. It's like a really popular person, or it's going to be in a really cool venue. There's going to be really good food. You know, people are going to kind of think you're sort of important for getting invited to this thing. Everybody wants to go to those things. Then there are the things that you get invited to that like, it's not such a popular person. It's not such a big deal. It probably won't be that fun. You know, it'll probably be like a small crowd or the food might not be that exciting or the venue might not be anything to write home about. So I think we need to ask ourselves, like, why do I do the things I do? Why do I spend my time or my compliments or my money doing the things I do? Is it for some personal gain? Because if so, it's kind of like a bribe, right? You know, here in the, com- in the community, every Friday night, there are Shalom Zachars. Now, some of you may have heard of a Shalom Zachar. Shalom Zachar is a party that is made for a newborn baby boy on the Friday night before his bris. And there's there's all these beautiful reasons for why we do this, but it's sort of like an own egg, like after dinner. And, you know, it's at the usually at the home of the, you know, the newborn baby. And it's like the, a lot of times the mother's not around because she's either still in the hospital or not up to it. But it's it's like a, it's like a guy party for the, you know, so the, the father hosts it and there's beer and cookies and, you know, popcorn and I don't know, whatever. So every Friday night we have this conversation because my husband's like, OK, I have three Shalom Zachars, you know, and especially if he's doing the breast, he feels like he should go and show his face at the Shalom Zachar. Shalom Zahar, by the way, literally means welcome boy, <laughs> welcome male Zahar. Anyway, so we have this like inside joke in our family where my husband always says, okay, I'm going to three Shalom Zahars after dinner tonight. And we're all like, right, right, right. Because we know that he'll, he will actually fall asleep on the couch after dinner. Um, but okay, good intentions, right? And every now and then, you know, my husband will say to me, no, this Shalom Zahar is very important to go to. And I'll be like, why? And he'll say, because you know, they're new in town or they don't really have a lot of family or not a lot of people know them and there won't be that many people there. So it's important for me to go. It'll make them feel good. And I, I, I so admire that as opposed to saying, no, I want to go to the one that I want to go to because it will be fun for me. So then you're doing it for your gain. You're not doing it for their gain. You know, it reminds me of this little video I saw recently where somebody was going around interviewing people and asking them, you know, these different rabbis and educators and all these spiritual mentors. If you could invite one person to your Shabbat dinner, anybody, past or present, who would it be? You know, and people are saying Moses and Maimonides and, you know, Queen Esther and all these people. So they asked this one guy, his name is Rabbi David Feinstein. He's a descendant of Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, who was one of the most important rabbis um, in the early 1900s uh, on the Lower East Side, whom many of the ways that we run our synagogue are based on the decisions of Rabbi Moshe Feinstein. So anyway, this was, I believe, his grandson. So he said, Rabbi David Feinstein, if you could pick any person, past presence, you know, to your Shabbat table, who would you pick? And he said, listen to this, this is greatness. He said, I would pick the first person I met who needed a meal. Because you know what everybody else does? They think to themselves, who do I want at my table? Because it will bring honor or value to me. 
And what Rabbi Feinstein was thinking about is who can I invite at my table because it will bring honor or value to them. And I think this is so important as we're going into the holidays and some of us are in a position to invite people to our homes for a holiday, you know, and sometimes we want to invite people who bring honor or value to us, our siblings, our friends, you know, but what if we could think about somebody, they're the person who needs the meal. They're the person who people might not remember, right? That is like the opposite of taking a bribe. I'm not doing something because I want something. I'm doing something because it's good. Isn't that beautiful? Mm-hmm. Okay. Thoughts or comments on 23? I once said to Brad, when when choosing a rabbi, you want somebody who's like out of your reach and like you'll never get there. <laughs> and I chose wisely. <laughs> oh, Heather. <laughs> You just made me feel so good. <laughs> just just for the record, he's beyond my reach too. I'm not, I'm not kidding you. Like every now he does something and me and my kids look at each other and we're like, is he for real? Because I wouldn't do that. <laughs> All right. Any other thoughts on number 23? Okay, so we will conclude here. Thank you again, Tammy. I do have to say that, you know, there's a special Mishaberach that we say in Shul, um, and we talk about the people who support Torah study, you know, and it doesn't necessarily mean financially, although that's also true, but it's like the person who puts away the books in the synagogue who puts away the prayer books, you know, and cleans up the chairs. So Tammy, you were my, uh, you were my faithful assistant today, my digital assistant. <laughs> Thank you for making it possible for all 24 of us to study Torah today. I appreciate it. Um, and I want to wish every single one of you a beautiful, happy, healthy year ahead. May all your pl- prayers be answered. May you be blessed with wisdom and health and wealth and musr and peace in your homes and peace in your heart and Jewish connections and friendship and good news for us and for the Jewish people and for the world. Amen. 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 Bye guys. Thanks for participating. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Bye.